Well, good morning. And have a great time at class, kids. We always joke about the exodus and how uh, at least 40% of our community heads out the door as soon as I start speaking. <laughs> Fortunately, my identity is in Christ, so I don't take that to heart. <laughs> uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Welcome, um, especially if you're new with us. Uh, thanks for being here with us. We uh, at Cultivate, we call this our family gathering because we do believe that we're the family of God. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means this morning. Um, but one of the things that we hope is true is that when you're with us, you do feel like family um, because we, we try as much as possible with the Spirit's help uh, to see one another as family, to, uh, to live as, as a family that supports and cares and loves and sometimes challenges and encourages one another. So that's why we're here uh, this morning is to, uh, to be a family that gets encouraged and challenged through God's word and through what Jesus has to say to us as his people, and then to go out and to effect change in the world and, and to be his people all week long, not just when we gather together on Sunday. So welcome, uh, especially if you're new, and um, uh, welcome because uh, we're, we're starting a new series this morning as well. And uh, one of the things that's I have to kind of... Uh, uh, do this morning is I, I haven't been up here for four weeks to teach and preach so I've I've got to like get used to doing this again it's been, it's been uh, one of the longest breaks that I've had from teaching uh, since we began five and a half years ago so if I'm a little rusty you know bear with me okay all right thanks I appreciate that encouragement brother <laughs> uh, but we are starting a new series uh, this morning. It's going to last us from now through Thanksgiving, really. Uh, and, and it's a series that we're calling For the Good of the Garden State. And that phrase, For the Good of the Garden State, comes directly out of our mission statement as an organization, as a church. We believe that, that our mission as a church is to, to grow and multiply communities. We call those cultivate communities that are rooted in the gospel, that, that draw our identity from Christ, and that are producing g- fruit in the, in, the, in the form of changed lives, uh, in, the, in the form of, of uh, blessing our community and being God's people for the good of the Garden State. That we would be a people that are countercultural in the way that we live. We live in such a way that we go against the grain, upstream from the way that our culture is going, by the way that we live, because Jesus said that's the way that we should live. But we do so for the good of those around us, to make our our culture, our city, our state a better place to live. Jesus put it this way, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's speaking to his father and he, he taught us to pray that way, not just for us to hunker down and live kind of quiet you know, lives where we're just trying not to sin until we get to heaven. No, he, he wants us to pray and to live lives that see his kingdom come here. He, he wants this, this world to be covered with his glory the way that the waters cover the seas. That's his intention, which means, and here's the, the shift for us, oftentimes we talk about, as our vision, the kind of church that we believe that God is calling us to be, and that's good. We should do that. But at the same time, God has a a vision that's much larger than his church. He actually has a vision for the way that he wants the world to be. And he wants us to be the kind of church that 
that, that gives our lives towards the dream that he has for the world. And so that's what the, the series is going to be about. And so I, I had a lot of time to kind of reflect and pray and, and think about the kind of world that, that we believe that Jesus is creating, wants to create, and one day will create. And it, it, it sort of, as I started to think about it, and I, I was taking the summer to do this, it, it, it started to revolve around six key concepts, six key themes that, that we really see as being the things that, that Jesus wants to saturate not just New Jersey, but this is, this is the place that we live in the Garden State. He wants this to be true of his planet. And so this, these are the things that we as his people should give our lives towards. So th- here's the six, and you can see them up on the screen. They are reconciliation, generosity, justice, hospitality, communion, and blessing. And so over the, the next six weeks, that's going to be our roadmap for where we're going. So the first six weeks of the series, we're going to talk about those six concepts. What is it that Jesus wants to seed into, if I can use that language, cultivate into the soil of our culture here in South Jersey? And then the second half of the series is going to be focusing on how then do we live our lives as the people of God that helps to see that day come to fruition? Does that make sense? So we're doing this a little backwards than we normally do it. Normally we talk about the kind of people that God wants us to be, and then the result of that, we're, we're, we're flipping it a little bit. We're talking about the kind of world that God wants to create, and then what kind of people do we need to be in order to see it happen. So that's where we're going. So today, we're going to start with one of Jesus' desires, his dream for New Jersey and the world, the Garden State is that we would be and see a state of reconciliation. That New Jersey, the Garden State, South Jersey, however you want to... I know we don't associate with North Jersey, so um, we got some work to do on the reconciliation piece already. Um, that we, we would be and see a state of reconciliation. Now, wh- what does it mean to reconcile two things? Uh, We're going to dialogue in a second, but let me just throw out kind of a basic definition. To reconcile something means to rejoin two things that were once one, but have become broken, right? So to say something is in need of reconciliation means that it was once together. It was once one thing. It once had harmony and peace and and connection and that state of existence no longer is. Now there's unreconciliation. There is disparity. There is disunity. There's hostility. And to reconcile something means to bring two things together that once were one. And to make something new out of those two things. So, so to say something needs reconciliation is to assume that it's in a state of unreconciliation, right? Now, so let me ask you this. Can you think of a time particularly in our nation's history, when we were reconciled, when we were unified, when we were one. Yeah, 15 years ago, right? Describe that state of being 15 years ago, for those of you who can remember it. What was it like to live in this country after 9-11? 
yeah, we put aside our differences and we rallied around the fact that we were part of the same nation, that we were Americans, and we were proud of that fact, right? What else? It's hard to remember, huh? 15 years ago. Yeah. 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 Regardless of affiliation or background or race or ethnicity or political stance, if you needed help, I was here to help. If I needed help, you were there for us. And people flocked from all over the nation, red states to blue states, to help people that were in need, right? And there was no dividing wall. There was one purpose and one plan and one people. So, okay, let me ask you this. Is that the way that the world seems today? On the 15th anniversary of 9-11? Okay, so why not? What, what are some of the, the evidence that you see in our country today? This one should be a little bit easier, right? That there is unreconciliation. That there is hostility. What's that? Okay, there are no disasters to pull us together. So what's true now that wasn't true then? Right, there isn't a common rallying cry, for one. But what's true nowadays? It seems like everybody's out for their own interests, right? Out for what they can get out of the world. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of controversy right now even over the anthem and what it stands for. And there's disunity even in, in uh, something as basic as standing for, the, for the, the, our national anthem. And, there, the, and because of, there's disunity around that, there's hostility, right? I mean, listen to talk radio for a little while and, and you'll hear those, those differences of opinion coming through loud and clear. Two different, very different viewpoints of people that don't want to listen to one another and who are going back and forth going, no, we're trying to make a point. No, you don't have the right to do that. Unreconciliation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even our political discourse is just, I mean, it's like 90% name-calling, right? And just character assassination. And nobody seems to care about wanting to build a better society and, and um, listening to one another to help one another do it and coming together around a, that, that common sense of we need to build a better world for one another. It's just I'm right and you're wrong and I will have my way and you will not. It's everywhere, right? So, so it's, it's interesting when we, when we think just 15 years later, to, to go from one extreme of seeming re- reconciliation to another. And it feels like we live in a different world than we did 15 years ago. Now, here's, here's the truth, and here's what, what I think is going on. Tragedy has a way of uniting people, but only for a time. Because here, here's what a tragedy does. It brings you together so that together you realize you need one another to get through the crisis. But here's what happens. As soon as you get through the immediacy of the crisis, you begin to bicker again. 
you begin to divide again. It doesn't have a sustaining ability to make very diverse people into one people for the long haul. It has no ability to do that. It has a short-term effect, but I mean, we're seeing the long-term ramifications, right? We live in a very, very divided world. <laughs> I hope not, right? But that seems to be the, the, the track record, right? Um, so, so here's the thing. Um, there, there's been a lot of this going on in the, the media, especially over the summer. If you paid any attention to it, the, the, the amount of, of hostility uh, in this country, politically, racially, ethnic, eth- ethnicities, um, it, it's, it's astounding. But here's the thing, and a lot of that stuff hasn't happened in New Jersey, at least not the big stuff that you see on the news. But at the same time, I, when, I don't know about you, but when I look across the landscape of our culture here just in South Jersey, I don't see the kind of um, people of various groups and, and backgrounds kind of coming together to befriend one another, listen to one another, and understand each other. So it, we may not, in our particular pocket of the world, be seeing a whole lot of hostility, but we do see a whole lot of isolation, don't we? That's been, that's been my understanding. And, and, and here's the thing. As the church, we, sent, we, we, we tend to be the most isolated of all. We tend to, be, to look the most homogeneous in the, in our, among our people. That's as I, I get a chance to connect with many churches around our our region um, through some of my roles with our network in the Baptist Resource Network, and and as a as a whole in terms of our region we're very diverse. Actually, if if you look at it population wise, we're one of the most diverse in the nation in terms of um, you know. Korean churches and Filipino churches and black churches and white churches. And, and we've got them all in this area. But those churches do very little together. And, and if you look at each one of those churches, they look very homogeneous as compared to the church that's down the street from them. And so as I think about you know, being the church in this kind of divided or at least isolated society, I think to myself, we're not leading the charge. In fact, we might be contributing to the problem, which is a very uh, sobering thing to think about, especially as a leader of a church community. So how do we, how do we overcome this? How do we seek reconciliation? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's great that as a nation we have something to draw from in our history to go, there was a time and there was a people, and those people actually, by and large, were the people of God who were fighting for reconciliation. And look at the impact that it had, right? It had a great impact on our world. So we, we have uh, a great cloud of witnesses, to use the language of Hebrews, uh, shoulders to stand on, so to speak, of people that have gone before us. If you're not familiar with some of those people, read up on them. It would be a great encouragement to you. So, so, but this is the question that we have to wrestle with, is how do we seek a state of reconciliation? How do we as a, as a people move into our culture to help it along the way? Living in peace and diversity, not, 
not isolating from people that are different from us, not looking down our noses at those that we disagree with, but loving people in spite of our differences. How do you do that? Because if, if there were a people that could do that, do you realize how different from the world they would look? How distinctly unique they would be among all the peoples of the world? They would shine, wouldn't they? So that's the question. But in order for us to answer that question, we need to know what the actual problem is. Right? So if you, if you go to the doctor and you have an issue and you're describing that issue, the doctor hopefully doesn't just take a look at your symptoms and, and treat the symptoms, but he's, he, he or she is looking for the, the thing that's underneath the symptoms to help you through actually getting well so that your symptoms get better, right? So that in the same way, in terms of our, our systemic issues in society, there are, there are symptoms and there are real deep issues. So what's the real deep issue according to what God would say in his, in his story? Well, one of the places to look for that uh, in terms of the actual deeper issue is, uh, is in Genesis 11. You might remember it as the, the Tower of Babel story. Now, let me set this up for you, because if you remember uh, the story, God made the world good, and he made it as a place for humans to live and thrive and to, to be under his care and his protection, and they chose to rebel against him. And in their rebellion against him, they ended up dividing with one another. There was shame because of what they had done. They were blaming each other for, uh, for their mistakes and their rebellion and their sin, and because of that, hostility read its way into the human race and we began uh, killing one another and hating one another and despising each other and using one another for our own good instead of uh, serving one another in love. And this went on and on and on to the point where God was so broken over the fact that his children had walked away from him that he said, I regret ever having made them. And so he decides that he's going to bring a flood, but he's going to save one family. Do you remember the man who was head over that family? is Noah. And so God rescues Noah and his family and, and uh, animals from, from all across the world and begins a new humanity. But even though they went through the flood to the other side, their hearts were not changed. And so we see that generation after generation, Noah's family spread until we get to this story. And this is what happens in Genesis 11. Uh, we're going to read verse 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why... That is why it, it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. 
So there's, there's this picture here of a, of a people, they come together, and everything seems to be going okay, right? I mean, until you get to verse 5, it sounds like things are going pretty well for them. They speak the same language, they're living and working together, they've apparently improved on their building method, so they've come up with a new way to build things, they have a common goal, they're quite ambitious, Right? You would think everything that they're doing as a society, we would go, you know, good job. Well done. Seems like a great people. But what's the issue? So you might think, aha, it's God's fault. We were one. We were united. There was, there was no need for reconciliation until God came in and screwed things up. On the surface, this kind of seems like that was still going on, right? But there's a deeper issue. It actually, if you think that, it actually misses the real problem. The real problem comes in verse 4 when the people say what? Let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, what they're saying is, let us come together and do something which proves our identity. Let's make a reputation for ourselves. Let's, let's prove to the world, let's prove to God that we don't need Him. That we can do something so great, so grand, that we will know in our heart of hearts that we are good people. That we are worthy, that we're great, that we're like God. And that was the distortion from the very beginning that Satan sold us, right? Was that we could be like God apart from God Himself. And the interesting thing is that they say, if we don't do this, if we don't secure a name for ourselves, if we don't have a secure identity, what will be the result? We will scatter. In other words, if we don't, if we don't have a common thing that we're working towards, we will start to compete and bite and devour one another. Does that sound like anything that we've seen? See, the conflict was already there. It was under the surface. God just brought it up. He just made it visible to us. Now, why would he do that? I, I think the reason that he would do that is because he wanted us to see that our rebellion against him, our, our efforts to try to take his place and make a name for ourselves apart from his presence in our life, it will inevitably lead to us trying to make a name for ourselves. And let me just ask, I mean, from your own experience, what's the easiest way to make a name for yourself? It's to trash other people's name. It's to lower others to lift yourself up. It's to say, you know, I, I know I'm not a perfect person, but at least I'm not like that guy. And we do this all the time. And our whole culture is built upon this. I know I'm not that, but at least I'm not that. And because I'm not that, I feel like I'm okay. I have a reputation that I feel is secure. See, and every time that we do that, whether we say it to ourselves silently in our own thoughts, or whether it comes out in the way that we talk to other people, whether we it comes out in the way that we treat other people that are unlike us. We are, in a sense, building a little tower of Babel. 
We are constructing a little monument to ourselves and saying, this is how I know I have a name because I'm better than so-and-so. See, here's the thing. Anytime that we don't get our identity as image bearers of God, anytime that we, we don't see ourselves as being secure as his possession, to know that we're okay apart from even our first accomplishments because we're children of God and we're accepted by him, then we will go searching for ways that we think we can provide a name for ourselves. Every single time. We, we will do it over and over and over again. And so when God introduced languages and culture, it just served to show us how badly broken we are apart from him. It just brought all of our brokenness up from the bottom of our heart and showed it to us so that we couldn't get away from it. It was already there. The way that Adam and Eve blamed one another and were full of shame in terms of what they had done. The way Cain killed his brother because he was jealous over what he brought to God and it was better than what he had brought. It was all there. See, here's the thing. Language and culture, our differences in terms of our diversity, they don't create the problem. They just reveal the problem. They expose our problem. They expose our insecurity and our doubt and our fear. See, because every people group from this day forward, from Babel on, are scattered across the earth and they have their own language, right? And language is just the way that you use to, the the medium that you use to describe your world, which means that your language is, in a sense, the way that your culture operates. Every language has a culture, and every culture has a language. It's the way that you use to describe the world. And because our hearts are revealed through our differences, it, it ends up meaning that we are instinctively misunderstanding of people that aren't like us, and often suspicious of people who don't share our view of the world who don't see the world through our lens. And it's not the culture, it's not the language, it's not the diversity that does it. It's the sin in our hearts through the lens of which we see the world that does it. I I don't know if you've seen this in your own heart, but I've seen it in mine. I've seen it in my own heart when I think of of, uh, people from the Middle East. And when I've, you know bumped across somebody in the airport who doesn't look the way that I do, I'm immediately, in my heart, if not checked, suspicious of that person. Why do I do that? It's because I don't understand the world from their lens. And in my heart, I want to build a name for myself, so I look at somebody who's different from me, and I think my way is better. Here's the truth. Every person on the planet does this. Every person. We all do this. Which, which means that's the, one of the reasons, one of the, the underlying causes of the fact that we have a hard time being with people that aren't like us. See, in other words, it's, it's hard to be with people that aren't like you, right? Because here's what inevitably happens. When you're around people that aren't like you, You don't have all the same things to draw on. You need to work to understand people from different perspectives. 
Why do you think we spend all of our time with people that are just like us? Same race, the same background, the same culture, many times the same stage of life as us. Because when you're with people that are just like you, there is little room for misunderstanding. There's little room for conflict. See, people that are just like you are the ones who most get you, which means they're the easiest to be around. Am I just speaking to myself here, or does this seem like a common experience? See, on top of that, our, because of our sinful nature of our hearts, we, we want to be around other people that support the name that we're trying to build for ourselves, that support our, our insecurities in, in the ways that we're trying to build our identity, that, that reinforce all of those things in us rather than challenging us. And so rarely do we want to be around people that call into question the way that we see the world. We just don't want to expose ourselves to that kind of insecurity. And yet, here's the world that God is making. Out of this hostility, out of this misunderstanding, out of this ignoring of one another. God is making a new world. He is building a new society. He is enacting a dream that he has for the world where one day he will take people from every nation and ethnicity and language and background and he will create one new family that lifts his name up instead of their own. There's a great picture of this in Revelation 7 when John sees a picture of what the world will be like because an angel is giving him this vision of what Jesus is doing behind the scenes and we can't see it because our eyes only see what what is seen and the angel says, no, let let me show you what God is up to in ways that you can't see and this is one of the things the angel says. And after I looked and there before me was a great multitude that that no one could count from where? Every nation, every tribe, people, and language. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is Jesus. So what are they doing? This is the undoing of Babel, right? This is not just one people that are coming around a tower to lift their own name up and say how great they are. This is people from every diversity coming around the throne of God and saying it's about His name, not about ours. It's about what He's doing in the world, not about me. And we are laying our names down at His feet. We are throwing our crowns at the, at the throne because His name is greater than ours. Can you imagine what society would be like if that day were this day? We'd see reconciliation, right? We'd see peace. We'd see people serving one another in love rather than trying to devour one another and build a name for themselves. See, that's why Jesus says, pray this. Pray your kingdom come here. Your will be done here. 
in, on earth, in this real place, as it will be then. I'm so convinced that God wants us to be a people that believe that that day is coming, that would give our lives towards it. See, and here's the thing. If this day is coming, and as followers of Jesus, we believe that it is, then how do we as his people live in such a way that we experience God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Because here's the truth. If this is true, if John's revelation of what Jesus is up to behind the scenes is actually what is occurring and what will occur, then reconciliation is not only possible, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Jesus will reconcile the world around his throne. He will do it. Which means, as his people, we have this great opportunity to live as the kind of people that would be a preview and a foretaste of that reality, which we are all made for. Right? All of us long for a society to work this way. All of us want to be part of a city, of a state, of of a culture where this is true. And Jesus says, it is true. I am making it true. I am making all things new. Will you be part of it? Will you join me in it today? I'm inviting you. Come and see my kingdom coming. So how do we do that? Well, there's a great picture of a people that are working out this, how to do it, um, in the first century. is the early church, and um, if you remember uh, anything about uh, church history, Jesus, uh, he dies and rises again. He sends his spirit into 120 people, and they become his new covenant people. They are living now by the spirit of God. They are coming together regularly to study the word of God. And they are going out regularly to tell people about Jesus who came to save uh, those who were lost. And uh, here's the thing that starts to happen. At first, the, all the people that are part of this new group of people are from what background? Do you remember? What religion? Judaism. Okay, so they're all Jews. They're all Jewish. That was all their common cultural experience was one group of people. How much room for misunderstanding is there when there's one group of people? Not much, right? Because you all you all have the same language, the same background, the same experience. But here's the thing that started to happen. God, through his new people, didn't just want to reach the nation of Israel. He wanted to reach the whole world. And so they start to go out. God gives particularly Peter, a vision for a family that's ready to receive Jesus into their heart and their life. And so Peter goes and visits this family, and lo and behold, they come to faith in Jesus, which creates a problem. What do we do with this different group of people? How do we live now? Because we're, now we're not just one homogeneous group. Now we're diverse. There's two groups, and there's different ways of seeing the world and different experiences, and different backgrounds. How do we live in peace with one another? How do we live now as one new family? And their backgrounds and their experiences couldn't be further apart from one another. Because on the one hand, you had the Jewish believers in Jesus, and they had lived their whole life expecting a Messiah. 
They had lived their whole life trying to be clean before God in anticipation of the day that Jesus would come and save them and rescue them. And so they, they had, had tried as much as possible to be the best kind of people they could be, to be the cleanest kind of people, to be the most anticipatory of God's activity in their life. They were literally sitting open going, okay, God, what do you want to do next? And then you have the pagans, the Greeks and Romans, the non-Jewish Gentiles. And their experience couldn't have been further from it. They were literally living according, according to their own code. So on one hand, you have the legalists who were at church every Sunday going, God, when are you going to move? And on the other hand, you had people that were hanging out in bars and strip clubs going, I don't care what God has to say in the world. Put those two people together into one new family and let's see how they work it out, right? That's what's going on. And so if, if you can imagine when this started to happen, there would have been an opportunity to go, we don't know how to do this now. I don't know how to treat these people that are very different from me. And, and the, the tension and the the, the, the temptation would have been that though God is working now in this new group of Gentiles, maybe they should form churches on their own. You see where I'm going with this? May, okay, we can't deny that, that God is working in them. The Spirit has come. They're definitely new. We see changes in their hearts. But they're just so different than us. Maybe they should just be their own separate group. And we'll be our own separate group. What do you think God had to say about that? I'm not going to have it. Because to have it that way would be to deny what I came to do in the first place, which is to create one group of people. And and so this is what what, uh, Paul has to say about this. Uh, And he's speaking to the Gentiles, to the the non-Jewish believers in Jesus. He says this in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So what's going on there? There is one group of people, the Jewish group, who have been circumcised as a way to show their allegiance to God And now there are a new group of Gentiles coming into the the family of God who are not being circumcised. And a group of those Jewish believers are saying, we're the circumcised, you're the uncircumcised. Does that sound like anything familiar in terms of what we've talked about already this morning? It's the Tower of Babel all over again. It's building a name by disparaging others. It's saying, we are closer to God than you are, though God chose to accept you, we are still better. We are still right. We were here before you. We will be here after you. We will not be part of you. And here's what Paul has to say about it. Remember that at that time, talking about before they came to Christ, you, who were, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So he's just saying, let's review what your identity was before. You didn't have much going for you. But but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
you're near. For he himself is our peace, who has made what? The two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself what? One new humanity. Out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So here's what's going on. Paul's using pretty graphic language here to to make a strong point. He's saying to the Gentile Christians, this is what was true of you in the the temple courts in, in, uh, in Jerusalem in the first century. There would have been layers of access to God's presence. And so when you first come to the temple, you would go go in through the gate into the court. And the first court, the outer court, was the court of the Gentiles. That was the first and the last stop if you were a Gentile. You went into the court, and that's as close as you could come to the presence of God. In fact, if you went any closer, you would be taking your life into your own hands. But the Jewish, the, the, the Jews, the, those that, were, that feared God but were from the Jewish heritage, they could walk right past the Gentiles through the second and into even the third, if they were male, gate. They could go to the innermost court. And, and guess what? Between the outer court and the inner court, there stood massive walls. Walls of hostility, walls of barrier, Walls are saying, we don't associate with you. You don't associate with us. You stay on the outside. We get to go in closer to God. Why? Because we have a better name. We have a better name than you do. We're closer to him. We're on the in. He's our boy. We know him. You don't. You get to stay out here. And so what is Paul saying to this group that were limited to the outside? That wall that you experienced between God and you, between your, the, the Jews and you, that wall has been broken down. It is completely destroyed. You see how, how incredible this would be for them to hear for the very first time? You now have access to him because you have a better name. See, it's, it's not just the name Gentile that defines you. It's not the name uncircumcision to those that claim to that, it's not even the, the name Jew or the name circumcision. No other name compares to the name of Jesus now. Because even the best name that you could possibly have as a Jew could only get you into the inner courts. It could not get you into the temple. But guess where the name of Jesus gets you? To the throne room of God. You have access to your heavenly Father through the blood of Christ who gave his life for you. And so there's nothing now stopping you from accessing him. See, and here's the truth for us. If we're believers in Jesus, the only thing that gives us access to God is the name and the standing of Jesus, which means family, which means that we no longer need to live in competition with other people in order to establish a name for ourselves because we have a much better name. I mean, think of any, 
any mark, any identity, any status that you could possibly earn for yourself. I don't, I don't care if it's a promotion at work or the president of the United States. It does not compare to the name of Jesus Christ, which is yours through faith in him. Isn't that amazing? He's, I mean, what would the implications be if you actually believed that? How would you live with other people who are different from you if you weren't always trying to compete with them all the time? I mean, can you imagine if you believe this at work with that coworker that's trying to go for the same promotion that you are? Can you imagine if this was true and you believed this when you were with the person you disagree with politically? Yeah, you may have different views of the world, but you can still love the person because you're not trying to be right all the time. Can you imagine if you did this with someone who's harmed you deeply in your past? You said, you know what? I don't, I don't need the name of victim anymore. I don't need the name of, of standing in the right. I don't need the, the name of needing justice and the, needing it the way that I need it right now because I have the name of Jesus and I know that I'm accepted and approved by the God who judges all things. And so I can actually love you rather than being hostile towards you. So if, if we actually worked out this implication into every area of life, can you imagine what that could look like? We'd be the most different people on the planet just with this one area. I mean, it should be such good news to us that we have access to God, that, that we could treat absolutely everybody like God treated us. That's, that should be good news, right? But here's the thing. It gets better because he keeps going. Paul, Paul goes, I, as if that weren't enough, it keeps going. Look at this. In verse 21 and 22, in him, that's Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to these very different groups of people who were once hostile to each other. And he's saying, in a sense, God chose to build his his new temple in the hearts of people that are different from one another. Now, why do you think God would do that? This is a real question. Why would God do that? Why would he intentionally take people that were once hostile to each other and say, no, you need one another? Is that an example to the world? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Who else but God could possibly do that, right? Yeah, he, he places equal value. Not because of the name that we've given ourselves, but because every single person on the planet is an image bearer of him. When God looks at them, when he looks at you, he sees himself. You bear his image the people that you, you work with, the people that are in your neighborhood, the people that are all around you, every single one of them bears the image of God. And because of that, they have intrinsic value and worth. No one else does God say that that's true of. 
Not even the stars. Uh, it's, you know, Pete shared the, you know, the statistic, what was it, last week, of like 5,000 stars per person, right? In the, what was that? Okay. 100 galaxies per person. And God says, you're my image bearer. And do you believe that God, when he sees you, he sees you as being worth more than 100 galaxies? It's true. It's true. Why else would God do that? Different people, different backgrounds, different experiences together as one. One temple, one building. What's to bring peace. See, we, we need others who are unlike us. Not, not just because that's what God's doing and to, and to resist it is to resist him himself, but we have to understand that we need other people that are unlike us in order to understand what Jesus is really like. We need people that don't see the world through the same set of lenses that we see it in order to know what God is like because God is reuniting all people to himself. We need to learn how to make space in our lives for people that aren't like us. And so that's the question. Are you doing that? Because the truth is you'll never fully know what God is like apart from being around people that are different from you. And as a church... I have to say, we need to press into ways of doing this. We need to press this, family. Uh, one, of the, one of the clearest ways that I can think of to do this is just around our, our Cultivate communities. At this point, we have eight or nine or so. And, and I'm really concerned that most of those communities, the people in them look a whole lot like one another which is the natural gravitation, right? Is to gravitate towards people that look and think and act and are in the same stage of life as you. But to allow that to happen is to miss out on the glory of God. It's harder. It's harder to, you know, to, to be around, you know, a family like ours with two young boys that are constantly, you know, causing havoc. If you're, you know, if you're a little bit older in life and your kids have left the house and, you like being around grandkids, but, you know, you like giving them back to their parents. Um, to be around a family like us, it's messy. It's harder. But you need us and we need you. It's harder to be around people from different ethnicities because you see the world differently. You have different tastes in music. You have different ways of seeing the world. You need one another. Not just on Sundays, family. You need to get to know one another's stories. You need to understand the way that people see the world. Because through each other is how we are built into the spiritual dwelling place of God. Is this ringing true at all? This isn't a condemnation on us. This This is just us saying as a family, we need to grow in this area. We need to be a people of reconciliation. We need people that don't just ignore our differences or condemn our differences. We need a people that understand our differences. So when's the last time you, you just had a meal with someone that's not like you? 
welcomed someone into your home or, or went out and spent time with someone that just sees the world through vastly different lenses than you do and just listened to why they see the world the way they do and how they came to have that understanding of the world. We need to do this, family. We need to do it regularly. See, and the reason is because we, we have a God who came to understand us. I love the way that Hebrews 4 puts it. He says, we don't have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He came and he understood you. He came and listened to our experience. Not so that he could just let us go in our experience, but so that he could join us and bear the burden of our existence with us. See, the truth is, if you have the same spirit in you, then you have the same power to do that as Jesus. God has given you the same ability to do that for others, even those who are different from you, even those who may have hurt you in the past. If you know Jesus, you have been reconciled and you have the spirit of the reconciler in you. I say, I'm convinced that the world needs to experience a community of people that know how to do this. First with each other, and then with the world. is what Jesus said. Very simply, very succinctly, he said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who give their life towards reconciliation, for they will be called what? Children of God. Why children of God? Because when we're making peace with others who are unlike us, we are most like our dad. The resemblance shines through because that is what he is all about. So I want to I invite you. We're going to go to the tables uh, to respond. and Andrew's going to come and lead us in that. But um, as you do that, just want you to consider um, if there's anyone that you need to reconcile with, that the Spirit might be laying on your heart, take a moment and pray before coming up. Ask if he's put a, maybe a person on your heart that you're, you're experiencing unreconciliation with. Maybe it's a whole group of people that you don't quite understand and you need to go and make a friend. I, I don't know what it is. I, just, I sense that the Spirit wants us to be a reconciliation people and that starts with us. And so we should search our own hearts for that. But then secondly, ask him if he, if he would put anything on your heart where you're experiencing reconciliation around you of people who are very different from one another. Because as a family, we're not just to do this with each other, but we're to do this between others as well, as far as it's possible for us. We're to be peacemakers between those who are hostile towards one another. I was thinking about my own neighborhood this week and the fact that there are two families right now that aren't getting along with each other very well. And for whatever reason, God has given us favor with both families. And so we've been praying, God, what do you want us to do with that favor? How do you want us to be peacemakers here? I'm convinced that if you 
have that heart and mindset, God will reveal how to do it. He will give you the way to do it. So first, unreconciliation between you and someone else. And second, is there unreconciliation that you can be a peacemaker towards? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God of reconciliation. Thank you that there is a day coming when every nation and tribe and tongue will gather around your throne. All of us will throw our crowns at your feet. All of us will take our name and submit it to you and say, we, we are nothing without you. Yours is the name above every name. And at your name, my knee will bow. Thank you, God, that we have the opportunity to do that today. Right now, in this moment, we, we, we can take off our identity that we've been using to keep you at bay and to be hostile towards other people. And we can say, I want to lay it down. You forgive me of it. You bring me back, not because I've been good, not because I have status, but because of Jesus and his blood. Holy Spirit, make us reconcilers. Everywhere that we go, may we be like you, your children, who make peace in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.